Hey everybody, this is Ari in the air. Welcome back to the podcast. Stoked you're here. Hope you're doing good. Hope you're surviving all of this in style and you haven't totally lost your marbles yet. Today I've got a really exciting episode for you. I have an interview with my friend, Dr. Annie Pendigraft, and she is a clinical psychologist. Annie is five foot three. She's blonde. She's fit. She's cute. She's got a big smile and a spunky attitude. She's likely to have scabs on her shins from her petals and some kind of facial tan lines related to radical sports eyewear. Her driveway holds a truck, a snowmobile, a dirt bike, and enough bikes that even as one of her riding partners, I'm still not exactly sure how many she has. She's from Kentucky, and from a line of outgoing and industrious women. She's very smart, very sarcastic, and super fun. She's also a clinical psychologist who runs an in-treatment mental facility here in Bend. She's in an interesting position, not in the ER, but trying to keep a very and uniquely vulnerable population healthy amidst the ensuing pandemic. In this episode with Dr. Annie, we talk about mental health. We talk about meditation and why it works. We talk about her job and how things have just exploded lately. We talk about how our brains make meaning, how we can help our brains facilitate that. We talk about how our brains make resilience and the connection between resilience and meaning. We talk about the importance of having space for sadness right now. We talk about anticipatory grief. We talk about some germ theory about COVID-19. We talk about a big bike crash he recently had. And we talk about so much more. This is a really practical episode, and I think it provides great insight into how our brains work and how they're likely working right now. Also, her insights help us understand how to make meaning and why that's so important. And that's been a big thread in this show. So I think that this is a great episode. Hope you guys enjoy it. If you like this podcast, share it, subscribe, leave a review. That really helps. Also, consider donating. This is a 100% listener-supported podcast. That is paypal.me slash air. I really appreciate it. Without further ado, here's a little bit of music. And here is an interview with my friend, Dr. Annie Pendigraft. being on the podcast. I love you. Let's uh, back up a little bit here 
and just kind of give me an overview of what your job is and how it has exploded in the last couple of weeks. So my job title, so I'm a psychologist, clinical psychologist by practice and education, but I currently spend the majority of my time as the operations director for a inpatient psychiatric facility in here in Bend. And we serve adults with serious mental health issues. Um, most of our folks are forensically adjudicated, so they're with us for a long time. Um, and they have diagnoses like schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. So my job as an operations director is I get to basically oversee all the details, big and small, micro and macro, of the operations of our facility. Um, and right now, in uh, the time of a pandemic, it means I'm doing a lot of management of staff safety, staff staffing levels, patient safety, um, and just making sure that we have the clinical operation uh, support to respond to the virus if and when we have infections and in order to prevent those infections from entering the building and then spreading from there, both among our workforce and the patient population. Um, and what so, is that patient population? What's the number? So we have, uh, in the region, we have 26 patients. Um, most of them are at our larger facility where we have uh, 16 patients in our larger facility and then the rest are in a smaller programs in the, in the area. So pretty, pretty small patient population because um, our folks are, you know, we're considered to be the highest level of psychiatric care in the state other than the state hospital. So our folks are have pretty complex behavioral health needs for the most part. Yeah, so it's a really vulnerable population to have this kind of thing. It is. And when you look at what kind of constitutes a vulnerable population, you have you have what you kind of see in the mainstream media as vulnerabilities, which are folks that are, you know, over the age of 55 to 60 um, and have under, you know, you hear this term underlying health conditions a lot, um, but there's not necessarily uh, agreed upon or commonly agreed upon kind of definition of what those things are. But what what public health officials are kind of seeing is the biggest areas of vulnerability are um, conditions like type 2 diabetes, uh, COPD, and um, obesity. And most a majority of our folks suffer from those things just because with uh, populations uh, that experience severe and persistent mental illness, there's a much higher rate of what's called comorbidity with those folks who have uh, just more likelihood of having obesity, type 2 diabetes, and COPD because of kind of those cumulative effects of adverse childhood events that lead to decreased health outcomes in adulthood. So it's kind and of a is double that campaign. from like, is, are those things like habitual? Is this like wounded people who smoke cigarettes and who don't take care of themselves? Yes, it's all of those things. So um, there's this, uh, a model, the adverse childhood events model that came out in the 90s kind of projects out across the lifespan that folks who experience adverse childhood events and kind of what you would describe as wounded people, that they're not only that their brains physically change as they experience those things, but it, it changes their social habits as well. And that can become cumulative to where minor social changes in your teens and twenties lead to significant health outcomes in your thirties, forties, and fifties. 
um, because your protective factors become increasingly smaller and your harm becomes increasingly greater. Um, and so these also these folks also because of the care model in the 60s, 70s, and 80s with people with schizophrenia was to control them, lock them up, teach them to rely on other people for support that when those big institutional settings went away, a lot of my folks, you know, that I serve now ended up homeless and on the streets and had absolutely no community survival skills or self-help skills and um, end up being in very vulnerable positions that lead to these long-term um, health outcomes that you see now. So pretty high percentage of people in my, our population that smoke, um, that uh, have type two diabetes, both because of lifestyle choices, but also because there's some side effects with um, current antipsychotic medications that cause metabolic syndromes. Um, so just a lot of complex compounded uh, trauma that that results from from the lifestyles that that have been uh, prescribed to these folks for sure. Yeah, and we're talking about both physical and sexual molestation and violence. Um, uh, abandonment, incarceration of your parents, and drug abuse by your parents, right? There's 10, 10 questions, right, in the ACES Yeah, there are score. 10 categories in the ACES. Yeah, you pretty much got them all. So, um, yep. Yeah, so just what um, are there, like, besides the comorbidities, the physical ailments, what are the mental vulnerabilities of a population like the one that you're dealing with? In, in the midst of a uh, you know, pandemic? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's been a fantastic um, exercise of curiosity, which I think has been a part of how we're trying to maintain our resilience through this pretty traumatic time in our field, actually. Um, because there are some very obvious effects that have been well spoken to in the last couple of weeks in the literature around the effects of quarantine on psychiatric populations. And so those are not remarkably different than what you would see the effects of quarantine being on folks without severe psychological pathologies, um, anxiety, worry, fear, grief, those sorts of things. But they're compounded by the fact that these are folks who can't leave their their home, right? Because they're in a locked, our program is locked. Um, they are with staff who can come and go. So they have people that are out in the environment, with, which they feel very disconnected from, coming and going into their home environment where they can't leave. And then you add on top of that, that a lot of our guys and gals have underlying psychosis that that presents itself as a lot of suspicion and paranoia and distrust. Um, and that just really plays into so many increased fear, agitation, aggression. We've seen a pretty big increase in people um, so far, not too much physical aggression, but just a lot of increase in just fear and anger and aggression, you know, verbal aggression. Those are kind of the obvious things. Um, what has been this very interesting, nuanced observation that we've had recently is we have folks who struggle um, to, to verbally communicate what's their thought content. And so they struggle with their what's called, you know, have thought content, which is like what you're thinking and thought process, which is how you think and how you express what you're thinking. And their thought processes are really disrupted because of their illness. And so we'll see folks that 
have all sudden changes in their behavioral symptoms. And we can't understand based on how they're acting if it's because they're having physical manifestations of potentially the virus or the disease that comes from the virus. And so having to try to kind of be more creative in how we assess people and ask people what they're experiencing because shortness of breath to them may not be as easily described as it is to you and to me. And so they may, their behaviors may change, but they may not be able to describe that they're having shortness of breath, which is one of the signature signs or symptoms of COVID-19. So it's been, um, it's been pretty interesting with that, um, with that part of our patient population. Wow. Yeah. I can imagine how difficult it would be to diagnose someone who has a really hard time of expressing or even acknowledging or recognizing or um, sensing what is actually happening in their body with a broken mental uh, thought pattern. Exactly. Yeah. I'm really curious. What is like, what is their level of understanding? Like, you know, two weeks ago, do you walk in and say, Hey everybody, this is the new thing. Are you telling a bunch of schizophrenic patients that, there's a global pandemic or what kind of mitigation on the full understanding are you kind of operating under here? Yeah, that's interesting. So, um, well, as you probably, as most people have noticed, you know, this, this disease really became so prevalent in the United States because of how it rampaged through a nursing facility up in Seattle mm-hmm. and, um, you know, infected a large number of those folks that live there and killed a, very large number as well. It's really tragic. And so from the beginning, there was a pretty big focus from public health on how to manage this disease in cohorted living environments. And so those are any living environments where you have, you know, large numbers of vulnerable people um, living in close quarters, which my facility qualifies as. And it was mostly focused on older folk, older, you know, like retirement or assisted living homes. But when you have physical health ailments like we have were considered to be a part of that vulnerable cohorted living environment. So from the beginning, we actually had a pretty open conversation, open dialogue with our, with our residents or our patients about what was happening because folks, even folks that have schizophrenia and have thought disorder do better with information. So just like our brains will make up information to fill in gaps, theirs will too. Um, Unfortunately, theirs will fill in the information with more bizarre and less realistic information than ours does. <laughs> so, um, you know, just, you know, anytime humans, that's how our brains work. Anytime we don't have information, we make it up. And what we make it up is based on our own experiences and our childhood and adult lives and our consumption of uh, information in our society. And theirs is based on all that, too. And it is often filtered through kind of a more uh, psychotic based filter. Right. So they their their understanding of it would, would become quite chaotic really quickly without more information. And that doesn't completely mitigate it. There's still folks that think that it's not real and think that it's, you know, conspiracy theory. But hey, there's folks that don't live in mental institutions that think that too. <laughs> so um, we've been we've been from the beginning trying to be very transparent with folks to the degree that helps give them the power that they need to feel like they can have agency in their environment mm-hmm. without overwhelming them in a way that help that makes them feel out of control and and like there's no solutions. Um, I have a phenomenal workforce, the people who are heroically 
committed to psychiatric residential care, which is not a very uh, rewarding sometimes field. It's not a glitz and glamour sort of industry. And they've been doing a fantastic job of trying to provide day-to-day normalcy for people, which is really important when you have major mental illness is just to be able to have a day-to-day predictability. Um, and so the, the staff that work every day that are doing that are just phenomenal people that they can compartmentalize their own worry and doubt and grief and fear and come to work every day and just try to provide that sense of normalcy. It's really quite fantastic to be able to watch happen. Um, Wow. Yeah. That's God's work. That is God's work. That's I hats off to you and all of that workforce. That is just even, even on a good day, that is just thankless and just terrifying. Like, I don't know what my own experience that, skews that to be so daunting for me to imagine, but yeah, wow, that's some, that's some deep stuff. But tell me like, what are the, you know, also just have to acknowledge the really deep burn that you just laid on conspiracy theorists online who don't live in mental institutions. So I just want to acknowledge that. (laughs) <laughs> but also Did you pick there, up on that it was just real real brief yeah it was real brief it was <laughs> subtle thank you um but there's huge psychological implications that people are having right now like you know even myself this whole thing came out and i was like well last week i had an ear infection does that mean i had it and i think that there's like you know how many people are are, I guess, not how many, but what are these pathologies that even just hearing in the news that this is going around, then create the physical ailments that would do that, or the curiosity or the fear. Like, talk to me about these like psychological like pathologies that are affecting every person who knows that the coronavirus is is making its rounds around the planet. I know, right? It's not funny. Like, I yeah, I saw a meme about you know you wake up with a sore throat and you think, is that you, Rona? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean that's a that's a character characteristic that exists that's so ubiquitous in our culture in general. Is this like a hypochondriac mm-hmm. sort of? If it's happening, it has to be happening to me. Mm-hmm phenomenon. Um, and it's one of so many different sorts of cognitive sets, right. That people have, like some people right now have the cognitive set that they're, that they're completely immune, right. That they'll never get it, that they're indestructible. And so you see them doing, they're the people that are determined to still hold, hold the game nights at their house and grocery shop without a band, you know, with the total abandon of any, sense of social distancing and just refuse to let it change their lives. Right. These are people who feel like just Teflon to this kind of global pandemic. And then there's other people who think that every tickle in their throat or um, like allergy cough or because they walked up the flight of steps and maybe they're out of shape, but they think it's because they have shortness of breath because of Corona. So there's kind of those two very, um, polarized cognitive sets and those folks with those cognitive sets of thinking whatever is happening is happening to them and they're having it the worst, you know, or the folks that are also maybe more, more prone to 
panic buying every little thing that could possibly help prevent this from becoming catastrophic. And in reality, we're all of us really need to be somewhere in the middle. And that's where we have the most power, you know, um, because I think it's this idea of trying to find power in the, the, the community sentiment of we're not vulnerable, but we're also not immune. Right. So we're somewhere in the middle and we're, we need to be able to kind of figure out how to have uh, efficacy and autonomy in contributing to um, a kind of a community-based solution to all of this. Um, and so, yeah, those, I have, I have personal friends, I have people at work that every little thing they think they're, it's happening in their body is happening because they're going to have not only have co- develop COVID-19, but develop the worst kind of COVID-19 and be the one that doesn't get the respirator at the hospital, doesn't get the ventilator at the hospital. So um, what I have been trying to do when those cases come up, because we've had people, we've had part of my workforce has been out, you know, I think I told you earlier, we've had folks that are out for days and days and days waiting on test results, not knowing if they're, if they have a cold or they have, they have COVID and my support to them, I talk to them every single day on the phone and say, if you, you might have COVID, like there's a pretty good chance because there's a lot of it in this community that hasn't been diagnosed. And if you have it, you will recover and you'll recover because if this is a a virus that you can recover from, um, and pointing people to the statistics that we have, although they're not hundred percent accurate, the statistics are very, still very hopeful and optimistic. And the prognosis is really good that, you know, the majority of people, even the ones that get sick recover completely. Um, and so information right now is just so helpful, but accurate information because there's so much misinformation out there. So, um, just to really help find that middle ground of like that cognitive set of not, not getting too sucked into the polarity of it. Yeah. That's funny because I think as you described those two polar positions, I was, I think I'm both of those. I'm, I'm both immune and I think that I've had it twice. (laughs) Somehow. Somehow, but you're the one person in the world that's had it twice for sure. I, know. I am. I don't know how. I don't know how. But tell me, talk to me about these these test results. I think that this is kind of as far as the American response. I feel like the testing is like the crux of all of this. So tell me what getting your employees tested for this has been like. Uh, as a community right now, Central Oregon does not have access to rapid testing. And so that has been a big challenge. And, you know, we're in the healthcare field. So we employ, we employ nurses and mental health technicians and therapists and clinicians and lots of different people who are in contact with vulnerable populations. And even for us, you know, we're still waiting anywhere from eight to 10 days to get test results back um, for folks. And that's even if if they've met the criteria for testing. So the criteria is getting better and better because testing is getting more um, accessible. But initially the testing criteria in, at least in Central Oregon was that you had to have evidence of, really this was statewide, you had to have evidence of a lower respiratory infection, which if you've ever had a lower respiratory infection like pneumonia or bronchitis, that's, you're sick. If you're sick, you're, you're not, you don't feel well. This is not going in with cold, cold symptoms and getting tested. You have to be pretty sick. And that also is very isolating and scary for people. 
um, because there's still a sense of, because we only have 20 reported cases in Deschutes County, there's still this sense of, if you get it, you messed up, you know, like you're, you messed up and you're messing it up for other people. And it's very isolating and ostracizing for people who are sitting at home waiting on test results. Um, and it's, and there's nothing that central Oregon is doing wrong. We're, we're accessing everything that's out there to access. Um, it's not, it's not a local community failure. It's not a state failure. It's really a, a failure federally at the, at the largest level. Um, we're trying to play catch up as a nation to something that we should have been prepared for. So, which I don't want to get into just because that's not my area of expertise, but, um, testing is what's going to get us through this the quickest and the best, the more we can test, the more we can understand who has had it, who has recovered, um, what the, what the immunities look like after infection, um, antibody testing, that sort of thing. That's when we're going to actually start to regain some sense of normalcy. I think as a community is once that becomes more available and more the norm, which that's what you saw in countries like South Korea that just knocked this out of the park, right? Is people getting actively tested and doing a lot of really proactive uh, investigations around contact and that yeah, sort of thing yeah. that we just don't have the infrastructure to do, not only in Central Oregon, but really as a country, we don't have the infrastructure to do that with testing right now. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, just looking at the population and the land mass of South Korea um, is a vastly different thing than what we're playing with here in America. We have just such a massive and expansive um, geographic plot. And we are, there's so many of us who are quite spread out. Um, China is no different, but China has just such density in their populations. They, so many of them live in these huge cities. And so, yeah, the contact tracing and the testing seems to be the pretty much the crux of getting ourselves out of this without spending 18 months at home. But right. <laughs> you mentioned something about when people get these, you know, when they get sick right now, there's this isolating sensation that they are, that they have fucked it up. They didn't wash their hands. They touched their face. They didn't, you know, all this stuff. Now they've gotten themselves sick and now they're bound to have gotten other people sick. They're spreading this thing. It's, you know, they are the part of the problem. And as the, as the roar of stay inside gets louder and louder and louder, and as more people take it more seriously and they post their own anecdotal stories of how important it is for everyone to stay inside, the times that you actually get sick and you're like, okay, my, like I'm having a hard time breathing. I need to go to the hospital is then exacerbated by this huge social implication. And the word you use was ostracizing. And I have been a, a proponent for ostracizing over the, as opposed to the use of force for a long time. But talk to me about like, even, um, like cognitively, what is ostracization? What is ostracization? Ostracization, and how is that like playing into this whole thing? Yeah, I think there has been a great intentional reaction 
through this process to try and find meaning in all of this, which is this idea that we can connect more now than we've ever been connected through other technological advancements and blah, 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 blah. But there is still an underlying dialogue, I think, and perhaps narrative that um, of this kind of zero sum mentality around um, if, you know, if you either get sick or you expose people, then that's something that you did wrong. And this idea of I have to protect myself and mine versus really cultivating more of like a collective compassion for people. Mm -hmm. And so um, with just, yeah, the sense of, uh, there's just such a, there's just a big theme, I think, of loneliness throughout this entire process of living in a pandemic and living in in a pandemic that's based on really close contact with people and that physical contact with people. Um, Kind of reminds me of this idea of even though this is only a droplet borne virus, right? It's not airborne. It's just droplets. The six feet becomes, you know, feels like, you know, six miles because there is so novel. It's so new and we don't know what's going on that it's, there's so much fear around it that when you think you might have it or someone has it, it's just this profound, you know, sense of, isolation. And even those are the words that people use of self-isolation, quarantine, you know, these are big words with a lot of historical impact and horse historical meaning carry a lot of weight to them. And on top of that, when people are, if you're sick enough to think that you have to genuinely think that you have developed the COVID-19 disease, you're, you feel awful physically and you're worried, especially in the healthcare environment, that you may have exposed vulnerable people. And I'll tell you, in my experience, people aren't sitting around going, is such and such person okay? They're going, is, are the test results back? Do we have it? Are the test results back? Do we have it? Because that's how they're coping. That's how they're making meaning. They're thinking about protecting their family. They're thinking about protecting themselves. They're not anymore thinking about how am I going to be this big, you know, saint type of martyr that's, that's doing whatever I can to be compassionate, they're all of a sudden in their own survival mode. And so I think that's what happens is that people have the best intentions to be supportive and to understand and to have compassion. And then once the reality of this disease gets into their inner circle, they go into into survival mode and they circle their wagons and the person who is then, you know, patient zero and whatever social group you're in really gets disconnected even more. Um, and it's can, I think that's not going to help with their own physical health, their own emotional health. Um, and so I think for those of us who have people in our lives that are, that are either waiting on test results or think that they have the symptoms, but don't meet test results, like finding ways to really focus on like having compassion for them, checking in with them, making sure they have connection, making sure they're, they have information because what are, you know, people that are sitting home that are quarantined from work that think they have COVID-19 are just probably going down the rabbit hole of bad information on the internet and finding every, you know, our brains are going to look for whatever we're, we need to fulfill our own sense of meaning. So if we're worried about dying from COVID-19, we're, our brains are going to pay attention to every single article about someone who died from COVID-19. And then all of a sudden that becomes our reality. 
And so really, if you're that person that's struggling with waiting for test results, or you know someone that is like just finding ways to surround them with what you, what you want your future to look like. And that's our brains will attach to that rather than to the lonely isolation of dying from COVID-19, which is where we go, you know, in our darkest moments. Yeah. And I think it's interesting right now because there's relatively so few cases, even the numbers are growing at an exponential rate. We still, I don't like, I only, you know, I'm two degrees of separation from anyone who has been confirmed. I don't know personally anyone who has have confirmed or has even had to go to the hospital or died from this. So I think that a lot of us are probably in that same boat that we actually haven't had a kiss of this in our inner circles. And the idea that you're talking about this like collective compassion that we actually open up our spheres a bit bigger than our own wagon it's um it's kind of ethereal right now it seems to me sure yes and it won't be though i know so and when it happens i'm telling you you think you're going to act one way and then you don't it's uh and it has taken uh for me you know i'm don't have children i live relatively by my, I have a roommate, but I'm pretty much, you know, single live alone. I'm not worried about passing it on to my 13 year old chocolate lab. Um, I feel com- completely comfortable being hundred percent dedicated to my work right now. I don't feel like I'm sacrificing much. Um, but what has happened with my experiences is that my, many of my leaders in my workforce do, they have young children Um, They have vulnerable parents that they want to be connected to that live close to them. And we all think we're going to react a certain way when it comes into our inner circle. And we don't. Um, We don't necessarily. Our first reaction is not what we think it's going to be. And for me, my learning moment has been to recognize that and, and accept that and have compassion for that rather than having compassion for myself. You know, I, I feel pretty, I'm probably in that terms of cognitive set much more on the uh, feeling uh, untouchable Teflon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, but for me, my learning point has been to understand when my workforce or people in my life have this really strong circling the wagons reaction to have compassion for that, because that's, I don't think that's how they expected to react, but it is, it just is, it's how they reacted. And so trying to figure out how to be non-judgmental and that make space for that and then get back to it because, you know, this is, as healthcare workers, we, what we signed up for. Um, so I just would say, you know, it's not yet, you know, you're two degrees out at the most right now, but it will come into everyone's life in some way in the next months and be prepared that what, how you think you're going to react is not how you will react initially and be, you know, have patience with yourself with that, have, give yourself some grace and, and just stay, continue. I think this sense of curiosity for me right now is what is, what is making my resiliency bubble, like continue to thrive. Um, because it's just, we just don't know. It's just such, you know, it's called a novel virus, but the entire experience is novel. It's just so, um, 
prosaically different than anything we've ever experienced as a society. Yeah. And that's something that I've talked about at length on the podcast is that our intuitions are parsed by our experience and there's no one who lived through the 1918 influenza outbreak in America that remembers that and has prepared accordingly, you know? So we're all in a very novel experience and how you're just the way that you're talking about your resilience bubble. Talk to me. What do you mean by a resilience bubble and how like, cause I think that that's so, so, so important. And I think that in general, what I've been talking about a lot lately is resilience. And as we come into this whole thing, like the veils are being lifted on so many of our systems and we're seeing how fragile they actually are. You know, our Medicare system runs so efficiently that there's not extra beds laying around. So if a bunch of people get sick all at once, we're kind of hosed. Uh, just even our grocery stores are like really efficient and complex and delicate, fragile fiat currency, all of this stuff. So talking about how we build resiliency is uh, really interesting to me. So I would love to hear just even cognitive resiliency, how that starts in a person, how we curate it and what we can do right now to build up our, our resiliency as individuals and collectively. Well, gosh, I'm so glad you asked me about this. And I was hoping you were going to ask me about resiliency. So before I get into that, I would like to point out that even the way that you asked me this question is a demonstration of resiliency. When you're talking about for so many people, the the rhetoric around our healthcare system right now and our supply chain right now is doom and gloom, right? Is we didn't prepare for hospital. We don't have enough hospital beds because we, we fucked up. And the global supply chain is totally screwed because of China. <laughs> uh-huh. And the way that you describe it is our medical system operates so efficiently that we're not prepared for surge, for surge capacity. Mm-hmm. And our, our food supply chain is so efficient that it's sometimes we struggle with, uh, you know, panic buying and shopping. That is a much more resilient way of describing the exact same thing that someone else would describe catastrophically. And that's a huge part of resiliency. So, there, the resiliency used to be kind of considered this black box of uh, the neurobiology of trauma, right? So you think about resiliency is basically in its simplest form of being the ability to bounce back from adversity. And resiliency used to just be something that we knew existed, but we just didn't really know how. And in the last, I'd say like five to 10 years, there's been a lot of research around some different, more passive models of resiliency, that it's something that maybe you can, that you don't really necessarily have a lot of impact on, but that it's a trait that you just have. And that perhaps there's some um, just exposure to certain stresses and traumas um, before, you know, in the gestational periods and how your amygdala is more or less sensitive uh, neurochemically to stress, that sort of thing. It, it was uh, elucidating and in, informative, but not necessarily helpful in terms of is resiliency something that can be built with intention? And 
the most recent kind of neurobiology of resiliency shows that actually people can gain resiliency through intention. And it's, it's even been kind of demonstrated in these, uh, like in studies with rats and mice around how uh, to turn resiliency on during adversity rather than to passively experience trauma. And so I think as uh, fairly fully functioning adults, it's kind of, very, it's very empowering to think about how we can turn resiliency on in times of adversity. And one of the, the biggest ways to turn resiliency on is by making meaning um, out of what, is, what your experiences are and what's happening. Um, there's this kind of, there's a, there's a push right now in the mental health community to kind of just recognize and acknowledge the role of grief in the pan, living in a pandemic. And I think it's very, very brilliant and very nuanced in terms of trying to, to accept this idea of not only losing potentially loved ones physically through the death and dying process, but this idea of mourning and grieving what has yet to come, like anticipatory grief mm-hmm. um, and how anxiety provoking that can be for people if you can't name it. And this, the last stage of grief that wasn't a part of the original Kubler-Moss throttle that was later added by David Kessler is this idea of um, meaning making. And meaning making is one of the biggest predictive factors with resiliency. And how do you make meaning out of what's happening. And I remember got into this debate debate once with a friend because he would say things like, everything happens for a reason. I was like, well, you know, I don't, I don't know if I agree with everything happens for a reason, but I do agree that you can find a reason for everything that happens. And that to me kind of captures this idea of how you make meaning or make sense out of a loss or out of a, an experience that provides you with a loss um, that doesn't belittle or demean what the, the thing was that you lost to say that you lost it for a reason. We don't, we don't lose people for reasons, but we can find reasons behind our experiences. So for example, one of the things that I have been, you know, this resiliency bubble that I have is really thinking about, all this, you know, lack of, uh, lack of connection physically has led to all these really creative ways of being connected non-physically. Um, it's helped people be quiet and reflective. Um, in my workforce where we're working harder than ever, um, it's helped us cultivate and create new ways of providing, uh, structure and meaning to the people we serve. Um, and it doesn't diminish how, stressful and hard that, you know, it's been the last couple of weeks and how stressful it will be the next weeks and months, but it, that ability to make meaning and to open yourself up to being curious, curious to seeing what that might be really helps with resiliency. Wow. Resiliency through meaning. That is profound shit. <laughs> um, I think that in general, we, I wouldn't just say America. I would say that globally we have like a meaning crisis. And I think that this coronavirus, like the meaning crisis is part of the meta crisis, the larger, all of our systems uh, being fragile and frail at the same time and everything stacking on top of itself from the medical system, to the supply chain, to finance, to our emotions and our connections. Um, the meaning crisis is 
is one of the big ones interpersonally there. And yeah, I've been kind of noodling on this, you know, so many people are like, yeah, zoom dance parties and, you know, connect with your, you know, we're so connected, but you know, like the connection hasn't changed from, you know, a couple of months ago, like all of these tools have been there, but we still have this Mm -hmm. meaning crisis. Um, I just love to hear your thoughts on this, like general, the the idea of a meaning crisis. Do you think that exists, and what is that like, and what's it from, and how do we fight it? Hmm. Well, I would say just off the cuff, thinking about how hard it is for most people to have original thought these days in terms of what how to make their own meaning. Um, it's just so easy to turn to other things and other people and other influences to distract yourself from the, the cognitive exercise of finding meaning. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, it's really easy. We live in a society where it's just, it's so easy to, to be distracted externally from our internal world. Yeah. So can I, can you just talk to me about the cognitive process of making meaning? Because honestly, I have with this podcast for all of the two years that I've been doing it, I have been trying really hard to help people create meaning in their lives because I have been so lucky to have really meaningful relationships and experiences, but the meaning itself seems to just like trickle into me and I'm not sure how I actually do it. So can you talk to us about, what, like, how do we actually cognitively make meaning? What is that process like? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, physically, neurologically, the meaning making process is this really cool dance that happens between your prefrontal cortex and your limbic system. So when we talk about uh, that brain function, we talk about something called top down processing and bottom up processing. And bottom-up processing is when you experience things kind of through your five senses, through your sensory system, before you even can explicitly acknowledge your your experiences. Um, Like people who have kind of a spidey sense or gut feeling or uh, a lot of times olfactory symptom or olfactory experiences, you know, can connect with past past experiences before we even explicitly acknowledge what's happening. That's kind of like bottom-up processing. That's processing that happens through our kind of our brain stem, cerebral cord, you know, cerebellum, um, hindbrain sort of activity. Um, and then there's top-down processing, which is where we explicitly acknowledge what's happening and make sense of it from our prefrontal cortex. Um, and so this idea that when we make meaning our limbic system is our kind of our survival system, our emotional system. It's the parts of our brains that are really, it's part of our brain that are really active during the the stress response is also really active when we're experiencing intense emotions. Um, It's active when we're in kind of certain parts of our memory process, especially long-term procedural memories and our uh, mid and lower brains. Our frontal cortex is where it's the part of us that makes us uniquely human. And we can't make meaning unless our prefrontal cortex is well-developed and highly exercised. (laughs) Um, For most of us, our first responder, anytime we're in the environment 
where we're having experiences that have an emotional connotation, which are most experiences. Our first responder is our midbrain. And our midbrain really doesn't help us with meaning making by itself. Um, it's our prefrontal cortex that really gives us that experience because our prefrontal cortex is, you know, it's our, it's what makes us human. Um, it's what makes us be able to think abstractly and have things like sarcasm, um, executive functioning, all those things. And, and you so say it makes this us human. idea that we can, sorry, it, mm-hmm. you say it makes us human because that's like a part of our brain that developed past, uh, like the mammal brain. Exactly. So a lot of mammals share uh, all the way up. We have very similar brains all the way up to our, our prefrontal cortex. Okay. Um, and so we have parts of our prefrontal cortex, especially related to executive functioning, language, that sort of thing that you don't see in any other mammalian species. And so that's, you know, when you think about these human characteristics, those are pretty special and they're stored, you know, mostly in the prefrontal cortex. It's not quite as simple as that, but um, I'm not a, also not a neuroscientist, so that's about as about as simple as I like to understand it. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, this idea of making meaning really help. Like, it's a prefrontal cortex um, activity. And when you look at people who can respond with resiliency and adversity, you see a lot of activity in their prefrontal cortex, like in functional MRIs. You see a lot of activity for people who struggle with resiliency in their amygdala. And your amygdala is your emotion center. And so this idea of really just being able to, like cognitive flexibility and curiosity are prefrontal cortex activities. And they're really, you know, there's a lot, meditation is very trendy. But it's trendy for a reason. It's trendy because it works. It works to open up those channels of curiosity to be able to see patterns in your environment that can be made into meaning, to be able to look at things from a different light and explicitly, intentionally put words to them. And that's really what meaning is. Meaning is not, for most of us, making meaning is not something that is like you used the word, you know, ethereal earlier. Like it's not this ethereal sort of experience that just happens. We have a dream and we wake up and we're enlightened. Most of us, that's not how we make meaning. Most of us, it's a practice. It's a practice of what patterns are in my life and what can I ascribe to in terms of uh, like a specific theme that's important to me. And it, you're not going to get it right every time, but practicing it and paying attention to when you're, when that emotional center feels good, like when that part of your emotional brain is on and you have sense of satisfaction and stillness, that is when you pay attention, switch on that frontal cortex by actually putting words to your experience, whether that's talking about it with people, writing about it with people, or with, with yourself, not writing with people, talking to people, writing with yourself, just putting words to things, making your experiences explicit can help your brain understand those patterns more intentionally. And that's really what meaning making is. You know, it's not necessarily this, for some people it is, but for most people, it's not the spiritual experience. It's a med- almost like a meditation. Would it also constitute like when we get to the bottom of a really awesome descent on our mountain bikes and we high five and we say how rad it was and we recant or we recount different parts of that and how we interacted with each other are those ways that we're trying to make meaning out of even just our last five minutes 
Absolutely. That's a really great example. And we, a lot of times we talk about meaning making from adversity, but we do it all the time when we're successful and we don't acknowledge it, that that's what we're doing. Um, and so just thinking about how to replicate that when we, a lot of times, you know, with adverse experiences, making meaning doesn't always, sometimes it feels like it robs us of the gravity of our loss mm. and of our stress. Um, and I would argue that it actually provides the opposite if we can do it, you know, with intention and at the right point in time, right? It's not always, sometimes you don't, sometimes being told to make sense of something doesn't feel like the right thing to do. Um, you know, prematurely, sometimes it might feel like it robs us of this sense of gravity over the significance of our experiences. And so um, in hindsight, really making meaning adds that, that gravity, right? It, it makes, it makes it mean something. It makes it, it have weight to it. Um, and so I think, you know, that's a great point is that we do it all the time when we're experiencing joy and success is like, we, we make little meanings out of things and how can we do that more often with all of our experiences? Yeah. I think just thinking about my own experience, I'm probably better at making meaning from the positive things than I am from the negative things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And maybe that's just my willingness to dwell on positive as it is as opposed to like avoiding the negative. So maybe that's something I can kind of keep track of as I am trying to make meaning. I want to back you up. Just uh, there's two things that you have mentioned that I definitely, that stuck out to me that I want to hear from you about. One is anticipatory grief. And the other is what you said about meditation and how it works. So let's start with anticipatory anticipatory grief. And then I want to hear about just cognitively what meditation is doing for us. Yeah. So anticipatory grief is this idea of grieving something that hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. um, and it's complex because we can't, we, it's hard to find efficacy to manage something that hasn't happened yet. And so I think anticipatory grief is pretty significant right now in living in a pandemic mm -hmm. um, because we're, we're worried, you know, we're worried about so many things and most, you know, really anticipatory grief is we experience as anxiety. It's this, it's not knowing what's going to happen and not having a power autonomy over those things. So this idea of what if I get sick? What if my parents get sick? What if, you know, my partner gets sick? Like what if I run out of food? Like all these, you know, realistic to non-realistic things that we're grieving the loss of grieving the loss of a lifestyle, right? Like we most likely are going to have parts of our lives as a society that never return to, to what they used to be that are going to forever be different. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's important to, to, to be able to acknowledge that um, little, little things to big things. Like they all deserve acknowledgement. The first first part of any stage of grief is really being able to acknowledge that you're in it um, and give it, give it words. And so because anticipatory grief is, is one of the reasons anticipatory grief is, can be so hard to manage is because it can be hard to name. It can be hard to understand, but also what do you do about it? Right? Like, what do you do about trying to manage grieving something that you don't know for sure will happen or not happen? <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's when I say anticipatory grief, I kind of mean this is idea of potentially losing something that hasn't happened yet. And living in that state of stress, like uh, physical stress is, you know, we, we release this chemical called um, what is the hype, the HPA access, basically, when we're in a, a stress response, we release a chemical called cortisol and cortisol really helps in moments of uh, acute stress. But when you live in anticipatory grief and stress, that that system doesn't turn off when it's supposed to. And it can cause serious health outcomes, negative effects on your sleep, your uh, um, your uh, your diet and exercise routines can be thrown off by uh, increased cortisol levels. Can have impacts on actually like functions of your brain. And so, if we can name it though, that that's what we're in, that it's this idea of like, okay, I'm worried that this is going to happen, but how can I? You know, there's this the therapy skilled call and improve the moment. Like how can I improve this moment that I'm in right now? And how can I find power and, and, and choice and what I can do right now? And I, I mentioned this earlier of those two polarized cognitive stats. Like we have the most power and the most effect on our own experiences by being in that, in that middle road of uh, figuring out what we can control and what we should take precautions against. Yeah, and I think that just to add to, like, anticipatory grief, I think, is also probably difficult to talk about. You're like, oh, why are you crying? Because this thing hasn't happened and it might. You're like, what? And I think that there is, uh, like you say, a really healthy way to acknowledge what you are feeling and dealing with it as such. And I think that there's also another layer that's not anticipatory, but it's like the being able to grieve the changes in your life or even the emotions that you're having in the moment. I think that people could probably benefit. I think I personally could benefit from giving myself the space and the, like the bandwidth to grieve the negative emotions that I'm having or the things in my life that have changed or the things that haven't even happened yet. So I just wanted to add that. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And then making space for sadness right now is there's no sadness. That's not, I mean, sadness to it, you know, when you think about making space for emotions, it is important to make space for emotions with, an underlying cognitive set of agency and choice, right? That we're not going to, that we're not going to go into this process and become overwhelmed by the emotion, but that we're going to make space to experience the emotion in a way that helps us acknowledge it and give it and give it credit. Like I, I personally am a struggle with making space for my own emotions and it has, you know, served me just fine for the most part, but in an extreme context like this, um, it does not serve me. And I know my own like personal practice, I'm trying to figure out how to make space for the grief that I'm going through the grief of, you know, my lifestyle and the grief that I anticipate my, my, when my patients get sick and, and what that means. And, Funny, it's funny little personal anecdote that I'll give you. That's a rare little like peek into Annie's emotional process. Was yesterday I went on a mountain bike ride by myself, really mellow. Was out on this really mellow trail where I didn't think I was going to see many people. 
rode from my house because I didn't want to worry about crowding up trailheads, et cetera, et cetera. And I wrecked so hard that I split my chain ring in half. <laughs> and I projected off, I ejected off my bike, landed in a bunch of sagebrush, went through some rocks, totally like no big deal. I'm not, I banged, I'm, but bruised up, no big deal. I wept by myself for minutes <laughs> because I was experiencing the physical pain and frustration of my fairly insignificant wreck was the cathartic experience that I needed to make space for every um, stressful sadness and every stage of grief that I have been going through this last couple of weeks. And that I anticipate to continue going through in the next few months, that was the cathartic moment that I needed to make space for it. And I made this not space for it, but more of like a giant crevasse. Yeah. They cracked the whole bowl open <laughs> yes. and spilled the milk all over the floor. <laughs> yep. And then I got done and I was like, huh, okay. Now for solutions, it was brilliant and lovely. And I, it was a, such a good learning moment for myself that I need to not project, you know, eject myself into the, in, into the sagebrush desert to make space for my own emotions. Um, it's like just so important to find small ways of doing that every day. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing. And it makes me sad to hear uh, you having so much to deal with at all, but I'm glad that you crashed. I'm sad that I missed that. If you're okay and <laughs> went over the bars that big as one of my best writing buddies, I, I'm sad I missed that. But yeah, thanks for sharing that. <laughs> I'll send you a picture of my chain ring. It's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. Pretty impressive. Yeah, you're a tough girl. And so uh, to hear that you're a warrior at work and that you just keep going that's no surprise here and but we appreciate what you're doing and maybe you can then kind of segue that into meditation yesterday i actually did an interview with a really super experienced meditator and a meditation instructor he's a friend of mine named matt Cohn, and he is you know so detached from the whole thing that to to do meditation as a means of an end is like the wrong way to think about it, you know, but mm, sure. I would love to hear cognitively cause I was trying to get this out of him. And then I realized I was trying to like wrestle some cloud and uh, I, I relented, but if you could just kind of take us through why meditation works, because I'm encouraging a lot of people to meditate right now, like a time of like, we, I think that, what's so important right now is that we all kind of go inside uh, of ourselves and kind of seeing these, these different systems just even in ourselves. So take me through cognitively what meditation even is and why it works for this kind of thing. Yeah. So meditation, um, one of the ways, you know, that meditation helps us is just by training our brain to respond more reliably uh, I think that's kind of the simplest way I can. Can you can, can you just say that again? Meditate. I think you cut out for a second. Sure. Um, the simplest way I could describe it is just training your brain to react or respond more reliably. Hmm. Um, and 
we, like I said, I mentioned this earlier, but our, our brain's first responder in most situations is our midbrain, is our limbic system. And our limbic system is really good uh, in certain situations that require a fight or flight response. It's really good. If we want to be immersed in our emotions, like we want our limbic system to be our first responder. Yesterday after my mountain bike crash, I just, my limbic system was on fire and it just, at some point I couldn't control. I just really let myself be in it and I needed to be in it. Um, but a lot of times our limbic system, our midbrain is really not what we want first responding because it's a very emotionally laden, uh, part of our brain. It's where our emotion center is. And a lot of times when our, our midbrain responds, it responds with extremes. Um, and it doesn't always lend itself to rationality and logic and reason. And so what, what meditation does is it, strengthens those neural connections in our frontal cortex. It strengthens our ability to think with abstract reasoning. It strengthens our ability to make sense of our emotional experiences. It strengthens our ability to find curiosity in our external environment rather than reactivity to our external environment. And the, the reason it does that is because it really meditation, all meditation is, is paying attention being curious. And we don't naturally do that very well. And, you know, I'm somebody who's an expert meditator and and specializes in in teaching meditation, probably like like you said, with your friend has become so innate, so um, just habitual that, that it's almost like the meditative part goes away. (laughs) But for, for most of us that don't do that on a daily as a daily practice or multiple times a day, it, that practice really actually can physically shape the connectivity of our brain. It opens up the, the communication patterns between our frontal cortex and our midbrain, which is a very, very unique skill and important skill to have when it comes to managing adversity and even experiencing the joys in life with a more profound sense of uh, intention and meaning. Um, and so, you know, neurocognitively meditation really just helps strengthen our connectivity in our brain. It helps different parts of our brain communicate to each other that don't normally communicate. It kind of opens up the channels in our brain, uh, different parts of our brains to, like I said, just kind of communicate back and forth that are normally much more compartmentalized. Um, and the neuroscience behind it is pretty, I mean, there's been a lot of research around meditation and there's a lot of people out there that are much more well-versed in the actual neuroscience of, of meditation than I am. But the simplest way I can put it is that it helps our brain talk to itself. It helps us really be able to access parts of our brain that are normally in two different, very compartmentalized functions, that emotional piece and that logical piece to be able to bounce back and forth in, in this therapeutic modality called dialectical behavioral therapy. It's called wise mind. So it's this ability to be able to be present both in your logical mind and your emotional mind and kind of intentionally take dollops of each in order to get the best out of an experience. And meditation is how we get to that place. And is in that sense, is meditation something that connection between those two parts of our brain, is that something that builds resilience in us? Yes, absolutely. So meditation is a great way to build resilience. Um, You'll notice, uh, maybe maybe you're not as connected to the healthcare, but 
um, those of us in the healthcare environment are noticing that there's all of these meditation apps out there that are being offered for free, like the premium versions are being offered for free to healthcare providers right now. I wish they would do it uh, across the board. I wish they would provide them to everyone. But there, this you know app called Calm. There's an app called um, uh, I think it's called Headspace. Mm-hmm. Are offering these premium subscriptions to healthcare providers right now, so that they can access these guided meditations, because guided meditations are so fantastic in in building resiliency. And we all need resiliency right now. And and healthcare providers, especially with just that physical resiliency of staying healthy and and engaged in the in the frontline work of fighting this virus, but this you know because meditation is is so predictive in our ability to be resilient. It, resilient, it's really it's just so wonderful and in, inspiring and hopeful that that there's people out there that have the resources to make meditation more accessible or doing it for people who need it. It's really cool. Well. I think we pretty much nailed it, Annie. I think we have solved all of the world's problems and helped everyone understand their brains a bit more. You are such an eloquent explainer of these things, and I think we really had a a great talk here. Is there anything you want to just uh, add on to the end? Um, Gosh, no. I think think if I keep talking, I'll probably put my foot in my mouth. So I think for a Sunday morning, it's it's been... (laughs) It's been remarkably productive. <laughs> remarkably so. productive. I agree. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for doing what you're doing, Ari. It's helping other people make meaning and talk about it. So good, great work. Like that's a huge contribution that you're doing this. I'm so appreciative to have you as a friend. Thanks, Annie. I love you. I love you too. Talk to Okay. Bye. Okay, guys. I hope you enjoyed that talk as much as I did. Annie will certainly be coming back onto the show here soon, so stay tuned for that. I've got amazing podcasts coming up. I yesterday recorded three episodes, three interviews, one with Rich Bartlett, who is a collaborative and non-hierarchical business strategist, entrepreneur, writer, hard-to-put-in-a-box kind of guy, thinker. Uh, and Charles Post, an ecologist, as well as Matt Blank, who is a base jumper and a uh, Burning Man facilitator. And we talk about radical self-reliance in that episode. So really great stuff coming up. I'm working super hard to keep this content coming to you fresh. If you like this podcast, please share it. Please subscribe, leave a review that really helps and consider donating. This is a 100% listener supported podcast and I appreciate your donations that's paypal.me slash airy in the air had a couple thousand listens this week and i've had three people donate so if you're looking at if you're hearing that and you're like what i wonder how many people actually donate to this show the answer this week is three go ahead and make it four make my day thank you so much for being here i love you stay safe stay healthy stay sane i'll see you on the next episode peace